Father, you know all things. There's nothing hidden from you. All of our ways are known to you. Lord, you know our thoughts afar off. You know them before we do. You are the God. There's none like you. And God, that's a, a real comfort. It's a real opportunity for us to place our trust and our confidence in you, to know that we are dependent upon you. It's also a warning. Lord, we can't hide from you. We can't run from you. There's no sin. There's no darkness that will camouflage us from you, make it hard for you to see us. You are light. There's no darkness in you. So, Father, I pray that we would take heed of the warning, that we would also take heed of the comfort that you have granted to us all that we need through Christ for life and for godliness this morning. Lord, as often it is that we go through the week and we go through life and it becomes very um, toilsome, it becomes very troubling, or it becomes very ritualistic. We just kind of go through the motions. And Father, it's easy for us to come in a morning like this, in the middle of February, Lord, and we can come with our hearts cold, perhaps indifferent, perhaps we've been fighting physical disease, um, Lord, for all week, or the disease with our children, and we can become just completely worn out physically and spiritually lifeless in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would take the Word of God this morning and as we meet together as the, the we of God's people, that our hearts would be warmed once again with life from the Spirit. That the Word of God would run, be run to our hearts, and once again we would be overwhelmed with your greatness and your glory. That we would stand in awe. That, Lord, we would not stand and yawn, but stand and marvel and stand and give glory to the only King, the only God, who deserves all glory and honor. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for how the gospel ministers the grace of Christ over and over and over. Not in order for us to gain salvation, Lord, only, but in order for us to grow in salvation, we get to partake of that same work of grace in our hearts. Lord, may we never take it for granted. I pray for those that might be here this morning, perhaps have never experienced the, the salvation that's in Christ alone. Lord, would you take and run the words of the gospel to their hearts as well. May they see their need of Jesus and his righteousness fully on their behalf. And may they trust into you. Lord, I pray for, as the gospel goes out around the world, Lord, I think of the, the Kirby's even this morning, Lord, as they're in South Africa, Lord, would you strengthen their hearts and their lives as they um, every day speak and, and, and educate these young people and tell them about the goodness of Christ. Lord, what a marvel it is to see that whole row of young people who have, who have heard the gospel and perhaps some of them have been born again. But Lord, they understand, they're beginning to understand what it means to be adopted, to be a part of a family that they didn't deserve. And yet in your loving kindness, you brought the Kirbys there. And they have been adopted as, as sons and as daughters. Lord, what a thrill. Lord, may we know that as well today. And Lord, may we love like they have loved there and like Christ has loved us. Lord, I can't help but think of our Spanish ministry this morning as Matthew and Susan Bixby are speaking down there. Lord, take the, 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 the message that has been prepared in Matthew's heart and run it to those people there. May they hear the sweet news of life in Christ, and may they run to the gospel there this morning. Thank you for your kindness to bring Matt and Susan, uh, Lord, to minister to our young people, our, our Spanish people there. The same for our Korean church. Lord, may they recognize the one true God and worship him alone. Now, Father, we need your presence this morning. If you were not going to be here with us Lord, we, we don't want to do this. Our hearts need to hear from you. May you run the word of God to our hearts this morning. May we hear the warnings. May we hear the truths. May we apply the word. And may our hearts be forever changed because of the message of God's word this morning. 
You know our ways. We are trusting you this morning. We do love you and are grateful to be your children. We pray and ask these things because of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Take your Bibles with me this morning. If you would, turn to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. We're making our way through the book. It's a wonderful book. I hope you are learning well from it. Um, from, every, from Sunday to Sunday, we, we know that God brings in folks that are just visiting. We want to welcome you here if you are visiting today. Please do not leave without letting us get to know you a little bit better. Uh, don't just feel like you need to get up and shoot out, uh, but maybe we can get to, to know you better. But here are the words of God this morning. The book of Daniel, chapter 4, and I want to begin reading. We'll read through the entire chapter this morning, uh, 37 verses. Listen carefully. This is God's Word, and may we hear it this morning. Be careful on how we hear it. Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and language that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. And as I lay in bed, and fancy, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might be, make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the, of the magicians, I want to say musicians every time, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretations. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew, and it became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop its branches, strip it of its leaves and scatter its fruit, lest the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him... Be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the, the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the Spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. 
Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became so strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was, all, which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has become upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and even periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree your kingdom shall be confirmed from you the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is it not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will amongst the hosts of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the time, at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is God's word. I pray that we'll be careful on how we hear this this morning. C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin, and I think for good reason. It is the sin that led to the fall of Satan. It is the sin that led to the fall of humanity and drove Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. 
And Lewis goes on to say, quote, There is one voice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard of people admit that they are bad-tempered or even that they are cowards. I do not think I had ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. There is no fault that makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we were more unconscious of in ourselves. The more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite of it in Christian morals is called humility. The essential vice, the, the utmost of evil, is pride. And it's through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Jonathan Edwards said this, the first and worst cause of error into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ is spiritual pride. The main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of, of Christians is this thing called pride. It is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. And the main handle by which Satan takes hold of Christians to hinder the work of God until the disease is cured, medicines are applied in vain to heal all other diseases. It's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? I think for many of us this morning, we don't often stop to think about this sin very much at all. Not one that we want to have conversation with. We often witness the tragic results of pride on a daily basis that wreak havoc on the relationships in our homes, in our workplaces where we work, or the, daily, the daily places that we visit or perhaps even in our local and national government. We don't really ever want to spend much time, though, admitting it in our own lives. Because we think we have our act together. The truth is, for most of us, we have to learn about this the hard way. God has sent to us some sort of painful, fiery furnace in our lives before we're even aware that the presence of pride exists in us. And so the story we're going to consider this morning in the message is, is one about an exalted leader who was more impressed with himself than he ought to think. King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is finished with him after chapter 4 which concludes with these words, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. The lesson in this chapter is one being humbled and discovering that there is no God like the Most High. And what has been missing in the earlier discussions of Nebuchadnezzar and God is the reality of an encounter with God by Nebuchadnezzar. And through each of the first three chapters, we see that he bumped into people who actually believed God and believed in God, but he himself personally had never humbled himself before this God. But in chapter 4, the pattern changes. This is Nebuchadnezzar's own story. This is not the story of someone else to whom Nebuchadnezzar responds. This is a testimony written by Nebuchadnezzar about his salvation. Nowhere else in the Bible does someone come to faith and shortly afterwards sit down and write as part of the Bible his or her conversion story. It is a bit of an odd introduction to the chapter because the introduction is really the conclusion or the summary of what took place. There are four parts to this chapter we'll deal with this morning. 
And yet there's one overarching lesson that's repeated over and over, and you've heard it as we read through it. Listen carefully. Only Yahweh is supreme, and human rulers serve only his divine will. Only Yahweh is supreme, and human rulers serve only his divine will. Over the past several weeks, we've watched this battle between God and humanity in, in two different realms, or from two different angles. The first angle was the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. We saw the wisdom of God, hands down, beat out the wisdom of man. Last week, we saw the image of man versus the image of God. And the image of God lasted through a burning, fiery furnace and demonstrated itself right in the middle, right in the heart of what man thought was, would certainly douse the realities of God. And now what we see is the most high man versus the most high God. Only Yahweh is supreme. And for us today, it is arguably the most important reality for any human being to have this truth burned into our hearts. Perhaps more than ever, we need this truth to be just plastered to our hearts. Because of our own godness, we desire to be God, and we want to out-God God. But it doesn't ever happen. So let us not be stubborn and have to learn it the hard way. This is the message today. Four sections to this chapter. Let us hear well this word this morning. Notice, first of all, the warning against pride. And we see this in verses 1, eight, one through 18. Now, one of my struggles all week was how much am I going to say? Because there's so much wrapped in this. Each one of these sections could really be an entire sermon. But I want you to see the big picture because I think this is the point that Nebuchadnezzar is getting. Watch this big picture unfold. So it's been roughly 20 years since chapter 3. 20 years go by since chapter 3. This means that Nebuchadnezzar is firmly and securely established. He is the world ruler. And what's noteworthy here is that the one of the most renowned figures in human history wants to address human history. And this is what he does in verses 1 through 3. He addresses this, and he goes this from the very beginning. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples. This includes you and me. He wasn't thinking of Eric Sipe then, but God was. He wasn't thinking of you, put your name in there, but God was. I want you to hear this message to all peoples and all languages. He wants all nations to understand this warning against the sin of pride that plagued him. He saw it for what it was. And he wanted relief from it eventually. But what we don't expect is that there's this secular king on top of the world and he wants to tell us about the Most High God. In fact, six times he uses that term, Most High, in chapter 4. So you have to step back and go like, all right, there's been a change in the heart of this man. And verses 1 through 3 sums up this entire chapter. Then Nebuchadnezzar does a little flashback so that we can hear the rest of the story, as it were. And this is what we see in verses 4 through 18. Notice, first of all, God troubles Nebuchadnezzar's heart again. We see this in verses 4 through 9. Remember in chapter 2, God arrests him as it were, in, in a dream. So this is chapter 4 now, and it's at a time when Nebuchadnezzar least expected to hear from God. I mean, like, everything was going really well for him. He was at ease. This is what he said. I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And history tells us that the walls around Babylon were so thick they could run chariot races on top of the walls. And from a human standpoint, his security was in his back pocket. I mean, he had conquered everybody. It was the finest of all times. Babylon was surrounded by a large moat and a wall that was approximately 85 feet 
thick and almost 350 feet high. And there were an estimated 100 towers built along the wall that provided military advantage to any time it was needed to ward off an attack. I mean, who is possibly greater than this guy, Nebuchadnezzar? Top of the world. But he's acknowledging that it's the king of Babylon, the most high man, and the God himself, the most high God, that there was this fight, there was this competition. And Nebuchadnezzar is already tipping his hand to whom he thinks is the real king in this tale. It's not difficult to imagine him relaxing in the hanging gardens, enjoying the luxuries that he must have felt that he well deserved because he had conquered it all. And here he begins to think of himself very successful and very secure on his throne. He was a master of all that he surveyed. But then striking right at the heart of him, right at the heart of comfort, comes yet another dream. Two other times, Nebuchadnezzar was forced to speak what was true. That is, only God reigns supreme. One was Daniel and one with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And yet, in his comfort now, he resorts to his own greatness yet again. And you're going like, dude, what is your problem? What about God's sovereignty and God's rule do you not understand? I love what John Calvin writes about this. He comments on Nebuchadnezzar in his quote, When God therefore wishes to lead us to repentance... He's compelled to repeat his blows continually, either because we're not moved when he chastises us with his hand, or we seem roused for a time, and then we return again to our former torpor. That's a cool word, torpor. It just simply means inactivity or lethargy. We go back to our lethargy. So he goes on to write, he is therefore compelled to redouble his blows. And it's a matter of actually God's grace and kindness that he does this. So God sends another nightmare. It worked the first time, sort of. It's going to work again. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Nebuchadnezzar immediately goes horizontal. You say, what are you talking about? He reaches out to his, in futility really, to the men on the payroll who were supposed to fix things like nightmares. And he reaches out to all of them. But of course, they don't actually have the vertical connection with God, and so they're useless to him. So what does he do? He cries out for Daniel, of course. You know, if, if worse comes to worse, I can always pull up Daniel. And he does. Look at verse 8. At last, Daniel came in before me. So like Nebuchadnezzar admits right there that, man, I should have asked Daniel first. But instead, he goes like, no, at last, in comes Daniel. And notice what he says about him. Notice his reputation. The one who has with him holy gods. Now that sounds really good, doesn't it? It sounds like he's really honoring Daniel, as it were. Well, understand, Nebuchadnezzar displays here, in this one sentence, his real view of God. I mean, the God of Daniel was just one of many. He wasn't the most high at this particular time. Because in Nebuchadnezzar chapter 3, verse 20, or Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 3, verse 20, Nebuchadnezzar says, there was no God like God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is what he, conclusion that he came to with them. There's no God like that. But that's 20 years ago. And he's forgotten that. And so he goes to this generic form of talking about God. I, I just, this makes me sick when I see this. I see people politicians, athletes, whatever, living for themselves. And all of a sudden, when something crucial comes up in life, well, of course, they start talking about God. And they even say, we want to be remembering these people in our prayers. And I sit there almost every time, I'm going like, well, who are you praying to? What, what God are you praying to? And when there's this catastrophe, more often than not, it's not the one true God, it's our own version of God that we give ourselves to, not the God of the Bible. So, Nebuchadnezzar's heart is troubled. Should be. Should be troubled. 
And so what does Daniel do? I love this. In verses 10 through 17, Daniel tells him the dream. In short, here's how the dream goes. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a story of a great tree that grows and becomes strong and powerful and was visible throughout the world. And then in verse 13, there's a watcher. That word watcher probably means like an angel or a holy one. A holy one from heaven comes and orders that the tree be dismantled and, 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 but, the, but the leaves are, and just take off the leaves, the, the branches, limb by limb, but the roots would remain, but they would be bound. And then in verse 17, look at verse 17. There's a purpose statement for the actions in the dream. I mean, there's this very important statement. To the end. Do you see those words? To the end. Look for words like that. In other words, this is what's going on for the purpose of, or because of, in order to get to, that the living may know that the Most High, there's that word again, rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. And he says the lowliest of men to indicate any man from lowly to high. That includes any man. And I suspect Nebuchadnezzar by now perhaps was remembering words like this that he's heard before. And so Nebuchadnezzar pleads for Daniel to interpret this because he knows Daniel has God's ear. He says it three times in, chapter, in, in, in verse 8, verse 9, and verse 18. Daniel, you're the guy who has this connection with this other God. And so he's, give me the interpretation. And so this brings us to the second point, or the second section. Advice concerning pride. We see this in verses 18 through 27. You see, Nebuchadnezzar has much to learn here. You see, the reality of heaven rules, that law, that God is sovereign, is fundamental to our humanity. You must understand that. Look at, look at verse 26 with me. All right? Because Daniel seems to indicate to him in verse 26 that heaven becomes the, the point. God is the one. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. You've got to understand this. Nebuchadnezzar, you've got a lot of things to learn. And the reality is we forget this every day. I mean, how we imagine something completely different in our world, that somehow I rule, that somehow our government rules, or somehow humanity rules. But heaven rules. Boy, how important it is to, for us to go to that point. Don't learn the hard way. Just go there. And so what does this do to Daniel? Do you notice that the dream disturbs Daniel? Daniel was right to be troubled. He believed the revelation that God had given him. And he cared enough for Nebuchadnezzar to have compassion on him and to, fear, to actually fear for his future. He knew this wasn't good for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel knew that the king was about to be confronted by the Most High and will be completely exposed in his pride and his godlessness. It's one of those things that if you've ever had to confront sin in someone else's life, you, you begin to realize the, the gravity of what it is that you're doing. Because as you expose that sin, their only hope is that they will return to God. They'll go to God. That's their only hope. And you'll see them squirm, and you'll see them kick up a fuss. But here, Daniel is very caring, I think, for this one. And he would be exposed in his pride and his godlessness. He had this ongoing relationship with the king and he sought his welfare. Love your enemies, Jesus says. Daniel was doing this. Amazing what takes place here. Here, here Daniel's diagnosis, and we see this beginning in, in verse 20. Essentially, Daniel, Daniel relates these things to him in a diagnosis. So he says in verses 20 and verse 22, you, O king, are the great tree, and it symbolizes your greatness. So far, so good. You're the guy. I mean, this great tree 
Secondly, in verse 23, you also the tree that cho was chopped down with only a stump remaining. That would have been like, you had this smile on your face, like you're hearing this, like, you're the, you're the oh, of course I am, of course I am, but you're the one that's chopped down. Oh, what does that mean? And in verses 23 through 25, you will live like an animal outdoors in the fields, and you'll do this for seven years. The king of the world, sitting there hearing this, going like, whoa, that, what? What? What, what, what do you mean? In verse 25, all of this will happen to teach you a very valuable lesson, that you will learn that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Okay, wow. But then at the end, you see this little glint of God's grace. God is gracious and loving, and God who is quick to forgive will show mercy. You'll be restored. Wow, okay, okay. But then notice Daniel's remedy that he gives to him in this. Look at verse... Look down, if you would, uh, in verse 27. You see this beautiful little picture. Therefore, O king, all right, there's, there's another pivotal word. You see that? Therefore, all right, here's what you need to understand. O king, listen to my counsel. Be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So there's hope for you, buddy. But you must do three things. Listen to my counsel. You must stop your sinning and start doing the right thing. And you must stop your wicked injustices and show mercy to the oppressed. Because you're not the person you think you are. And if you do, God may be kind. And there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. You don't deserve it. But if God is gracious, God may extend that to you. Now understand... Daniel's been serving Nebuchadnezzar since he was kidnapped by this man when he was about 15. And now he's probably about 35 years of age or older. So for a long time, he's had this relationship, this give and take relationship. So Daniel knows the command that's in Jeremiah 29 to seek the welfare of the city. That's, that's the same thing that Jesus interpreted to say, love your enemies. Do good to those who spitefully use you. And this would include, then, seeking the welfare of this abusive, oppressive tyrant called Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel feels the weight of the world on his shoulders, but stop for a moment to look at something. God is working his righteous glory out with confronting Nebuchadnezzar's pride and sin, and God will cause this to happen. God is the great orchestrator of all this. He's got his baton up, and, and Daniel is merely... The, 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 the one bringing the message. I love this picture. This Daniel's love and care for Nebuchadnezzar has caused in Daniel a pause in his own spirit. But when came time to speak the truth to him, there was only one remedy to pride. Confession and Repentance. Boy, can we just stop and learn that? Look at our lives, see our puffness of our own will, of our own way, and there's only one remedy to that, and that is confession and repentance. And notice that it involves listening to God's man. I find it interesting that God sends Nebuchadnezzar yet again this man and this man, because he understands the dynamic of how God uses prophets and people, that he says, listen to my words. Listen to what I'm saying. And so this is why you hear me often say, we've come to hear God's words. And when we read Scripture, it's the voice of God that we're hearing. Because I want you to do the same. I want you to listen to not my words, but as I speak God's word. It's very important. This is how God decides to do this. And it also includes stopping of the sinful heart impulse. Stop it. Every one of you have seen that funny video, Bob Newhart, this 
woman comes into him, and she starts telling him this wacky stuff that he's doing, and he just looks at her. He's supposed to be this psychologist, and he looks at her and goes, stop it. She goes, you mean stop it? And he goes, S-T-O-P-I-T, stop it. And we laugh at that because we go like, oh, well, that's just, that's just too harsh. I mean, you've got you to gotta come to understand them. No, there's a reality that there comes a time when God is going to look at us and go, stop. I say this word probably 250 times a week to my dogs. Because the neighbor's dogs come out, and every time they come out, they know what they're doing. They bark, and they jump up and down, knowing that there's these two dogs in the Sipe house that's going to come and yell at them. And I'm sitting there studying, and out of nowhere, Josie, who has this big, large bark, jumps up because she's heard him. I didn't hear him. She has. And barks. And so I'm just going to like, stop. You know, sometimes, folks, can I just say something to you? We need for someone to look at us in the eye and go, stop. Just stop it. And this is what Daniel does. Daniel's remedy is to submit to a God-centered worldview. And he's saying stop because the view that Nebuchadnezzar has is the wrong view. It's not seeing God as who he is. C.S. Lewis writes, pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. And Nebuchadnezzar is confronted with God's grace in a warning. And so he says, one, humble yourself, or God will humble you. I like how Chaz said it this week. You'd heard a guy talk about this particular text. And he says, there's a plan A, the plan of humility. And then there's a plan B, the plan of be humiliated. And this is what happens. Notice the next section, the consequences of pride, verses 28 through 33. Look at verse 28 with me. It just kind of sets this pace. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. I don't exactly know what that means. And if you read the commentaries, they're like all over the map. But here's where I think what it means. It seems plausible at this point that he pondered the words from God perhaps for a moment but then not really. You say, how do you know that? Well, as you read through, it's 12 months that goes by, and it's silent. He just goes on living the way he lives. And once again, just when he least expected it, God's operation plan B of humiliation goes into effect. It's powerful. And not only did God send him dreams to disturb him, and God sent him a Daniel to instruct him and warn him, he also gives him an extended period of months, 12 months exactly, during which he could have turned from his sin. I mean, the evidence is, is that Nebuchadnezzar presumed upon the patience of God. He just wasn't going to give in. Stubborn. This is perhaps the worst sin he could have committed by presuming on the patience of God. Nebuchadnezzar scoffed at the warnings of God once again. And let me ask you, how does that happen? Good grief, fellow, you've had two dreams. And they've come true. And now they're coming true again. How does that happen? Well, let me give you a little illustration how this happens. A fellow by the name of John Elias was an 18th century Welsh evangelist once recalled the time when the local blacksmith had bought a new dog. At first when the blacksmith would work, the hammer pounded, and the dog would be barking fiercely as the blacksmith's hammer beat rhythmically on the metal of the horseshoes. But as time went on, the barking became quieter and less frequent until one day, Elias came, looked into the smithy to catch the blacksmith hammering away at the anvil and saw the dog asleep by the fire, silent at last. Nebuchadnezzar had grown similarly accustomed to the hammering of the word of God into his heart. Ignoring it had rendered his conscience increasingly immune to its impact on his life. 
This sounds like the country of America. This sounds like the church today. It sounds like, at times, Calvary Bible Church. When we no longer hear God's word as God's rightful rule in our world, where does that leave us? Daniel tells us. Well, actually, Nebuchadnezzar tells us through Daniel. And this is where it always, this is where it always goes. Be warned. And we see, first of all, that the life of I as the center of our world becomes our reality. Look at verse 30. You'll see what I'm talking about. Verse 30. I just have to find it here. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Three times in one verse, the pronoun I or its equivalent is mentioned in his speech to himself. The nature of pride seeks to put us in the center of our world. And the tree and the dream is placed right in the middle of the entire world and it reaches from the earth to the heavens. This is how it happens. In a commencement speech that now rates as one of the Time Magazine's top ten speeches, a fellow who's now passed away named David Foster Wallace read this. Listen carefully. He goes, quote, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. This guy's no believer, okay? Not even trying to sound like a believer. He says the only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. He said, it's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. That's powerful words. At one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are our default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. What Wallace is telling us is that what Nebuchadnezzar is telling us, that our pursuits in life show us what we're worshiping and what we're worshiping will never be enough. Do you see that in your life? One day you will because God won't let you alone. God didn't let him alone. He didn't leave Nebuchadnezzar alone and he had to learn the hard way that he wasn't the center of his world and it wasn't indeed his world. Can we just learn that now? instead of the hard way. So I is the center of his world, but then I want us to spend a little bit of time on this, and I look at the time, and I'm going like, man, it always goes by so fast. Hang on, all right? Letter B, he goes out of his mind. Verses 31 through 33. God's judgment in one sense was sudden, but it wasn't, because he told him what was going to happen. And it says, while the words were in his mouth. I just can't even imagine that. 
Here he is speaking of how great I am. He's in La La Land. And he's struck with what would be called in our day a neurotic disorder. And I learned this week that there's actually a psychosis that is called lycanthropy, which is the delusion in which the patient thinks that he or she has been transformed into an animal. It actually is a thing. The thought here is one that who was superhuman became subhuman. So, with much of our mental illnesses in our world today, there's a strong hesitancy, though, to connect disorders to sin. And I want to be very careful in how I say this, but God actually does connect His sin to this particular disorder. And it's where it took Him. well-known psychologist from Harvard named Gordon Alport makes this observation. The very nature of the neurotic disorder is tied to pride. If the sufferer is hypersensitive and resentful, he may be indicating a fear that he will not appear to advantage in in competitive situation where he wants to show his worth. If he's chronically indecisive, he's showing fear that he may do the wrong thing and be discredited. If he's over-scrupulous and self-critical, he may be endeavoring to show how praiseworthy he really is. Thus, most neuroses are from the point of view mixed with sin and pride. Now listen to me carefully. Make sure you understand this. I am not saying that all mental illness is caused by sin. To some degree, we all would understand that all illnesses are because of sin. But I am not saying that because someone struggles in a mental way in some area, that that is primarily due to sin. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we can't reduce humanity to chemical responses. Because this passage shows us that you actually can't rule it out that sin does affect us this way. The world system refuses to go to the spiritual side of life and it ignores all the while the things that are only in the physical world. Everything else it ignores, only the things in the physical world. So let me ask you a question this morning. Is guilt a material thing or an immaterial thing? And if it is an immaterial thing, then why couldn't it be immaterial or unseen causes for certain human conditions? Daniel 4 opens up a realistic and scary window at how far our pride and our guilt and shame can take us. Can. Nebuchadnezzar suffered from this pride and this guilt. And there's a 12-month gap between his call to repentance and what happens. What happened in those 12 months? We really don't know. Scripture doesn't say. But have you ever walked around with guilt on your conscience? Real guilt? Our pride and guilt affect our health. David, in his guilt, in Psalm 22, said... I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. I mean, this passage is a warning for every one of us. It's not a pretty warning. It's telling us that our pride, like a cancer, greatly affects our minds. Now, please understand something. I'm not the final word on this. I'm a pastor. I can speak pastorally into stuff like this, but I can't speak physicianally into stuff like this. But I do know that this particular guy goes crazy. He loses his mind. God did it? Granted. But when you think more of yourself than you should, you become less than human. And pride is very dehumanizing. It turns you into a beast. It wreaks havoc on you and havoc on those around you. And it literally happens to Nebuchadnezzar. But it is showing us where sin can take us to the point that we are acting like animals. You see, pride is dehumanizing. 
And we grow proud in our pursuit of being the kings of our own lives, and we end up losing our own souls. Do you not hear the words of Galatians 6, 7, quietly, perhaps in the distance? Don't be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. It's very tragic what happens to this fellow. But then we see verse 34, a really neat change that takes place. And this is a picture of God's amazing grace. The heart of humility. Verses 34 through 37. What does God's grace and mercy do to a heart? It's very beautiful, okay? But notice several things. One, he says this in verse 34, at the end of the days, at the end of the days. You know what that means? When seven years was up. That this whole process, he was like this for seven years. It took him seven years to figure things out. At the end of the days, he did not experience immediate transformation. We just think sometimes we should, we should, we should pray and God should change. But sometimes... Things go so far in our hearts, in our minds, it takes a long time for us to get a hold of this. Seven years is nothing to God. It's quite a bit to us. Did you get it? Oh my goodness, all right. Was it, was it getting Jerry? Was it getting Jerry? Oh my goodness. I think you gave Jerry a heart attack. I think that's what you did. All right. Wow. Okay. Let's get back. Thank you, Gabriel. Appreciate that. Taking care of Jerry like that. It took time. That's my point. It took time. Secondly, his reason returned. He says this twice. It's almost like Nebuchadnezzar's underscoring this. My reason returned. And what happened here was he saw what was true concerning God. That's where the point of his reason returning. In verse 30, it was I, 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 me, 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 my, my, my. And the change in his vision concerning God was now directed upward to God. And it was he does this now. I mean, he's now in his right mind because he knows who God is. He understands the nature of God, the person of God, the attributes of God. This is what comes flowing out of his heart and his mind. He gets who God is. And this is where you want to be, folks. This is the transformation that only comes from the goodness and the grace that's in God. And notice the pronouns. It's his, he, him. It's no longer I but him. My friend, this is when you begin to know whether a person has really been changed. I talk to people all the time who claim salvation, but when you talk to them, what they say over and over and over is I, 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 I. People who claim to be Christians, people who claim to be Christ, and they're speaking I, I, I. My friend, the tone of our conversation ought to be He did this. He did this. This is what he has done. And his reason returned when he saw God. And in God's kindness, his fortune is restored. Now let me ask you a question. Did Nebuchadnezzar claim credit for his increase of his kingdom? Not this time. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. That's when a soul has been encountered with God. The king of heaven. The word the king of heaven appears in, the, in this only time in the Old Testament. And notice why the king on earth praises and extols and honors the king who's in heaven. Because it's truly all that he can do. It's the only thing he has left. When you die to self, 
you only have God left. And he gives three reasons. All his works are right. All of his works are right. Can you say that in your life? Is that the mantra of your voice? Everything that God does is right. Two, his ways are just. And three, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Powerful words. It's a clear recognition of God. But understand something. These are his last words. He's dead now. I think he's in heaven now. He ultimately learned but it was truly the hard way. God is kind and merciful. And let me give you this morning four very practical considerations as we finish. One, listen carefully. Recognize and own that the pride of your heart is a personal affront against God. Own it. Don't ignore the Holy Spirit bringing conviction, but repent and turn to the one true Savior. Secondly, understand there is real evil in the world. It exists. It's all around us. And it's Christ's own righteousness is our remedy. It's one thing to realize and see the sin around us in our world. It's another thing to try to create our own self-righteousness to fix that. We become self-righteous in our politics. We think we're going to fix that. We become self-righteous in our churchianity, and we think that's going to fix that. My friend, no. We run to Christ. Thirdly, there are always consequences for our sin. Will you believe that? Trust that? There's always consequences. It's the, it's the harvest principle. Sowing and reaping. And then finally this morning, what you worship here on earth will never satisfy you. If you're constantly running to the next earthly thing that you're grabbing for, hoping to find a solace of heart, you will never be satisfied. Listen to these words in Psalm 18. Because here's another beautiful recognition of God. The psalmist writes this. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble people. But you will bring down haughty looks. You have also forgiven me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me. Your gentleness has made me great. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. Great deliverance he gives to his king. May we believe and trust the one true God and be constantly turning from the pride of our own godness and rest in him. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, what a remarkable story of plain old human truth. We see it outlined from a person in history. We know that this happened not just because of history, but you've recorded it, his words in your book, great God. So let us be careful how we hear it this morning. Father, we come confessing our pride and our arrogance, our own desire to be God. And Father, we recognize that if we continue going down that road, the offshoots that go off that path and go down is dark and the consequences are dreadful when we give ourselves to our own godness and to our own pride and father i'm asking as as 
as a shepherd, as a church, would you continue to cause us to be humble? And that means that the presence of grace will abound in our midst. Would you keep us from self-righteousness? Would you do what it takes, Lord, to break our hardened hearts of our own will and our own willfulness? Father, help us to hear your words so that we don't have to learn it the hard way. But Father, if you do take us down that hard path, may we in that hardness and may we in that path continue to trust you that what you are doing is fashioning our hearts to be more like Jesus and less like ourselves. Will we trust you when there is pain and when there is suffering? Because right living doesn't necessarily mean that we will not experience testing. Sometimes right living brings on more testing so that Christ's work of grace will be seen in a more powerful way. Forgive us for demanding how you should treat us. Forgive us for our bitterness towards you when you don't treat us the way we think we should be treated. And God, help us to love you even when we can't even think right because of our circumstances. Thank you for the grace that you showed Nebuchadnezzar. Thank you that someday we'll be able to talk to him, see him. But it's because of Christ's perfect work that eventually brings him that wonderful salvation that we get to read about in verses 1 through 3. Father, save those who would bow before you and humble themselves. Restore, that, restore them with the joy of their salvation. And may we live our hearts for you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Good word from Daniel chapter 4 this morning.